Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. When you think of the American dream, does it conjure up imagery of suburban living? There has often been a taken for granted assumption that once you move to the suburbs, you've quote unquote made it. But who is moving to the suburbs and what does making it really look like? In recent years, we've seen a lot of shifts within the suburbs from demographics to suburban redesign. To tell us more about how the suburbs are changing schools and communities, this morning I'm joined by Dr. LaRue Lewis-McCoy. Dr. LaRue Lewis-McCoy is a sociologist whose scholarship and activism centers issues of race, education, and opportunity. He is an associate professor at New York University in the Sociology of Education program in the School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. In the area of education, he critically engages how educational resources and opportunities are hoarded. In his first book, Inequality in the Promised Land, he tackled how inequality persisted in an integrated school and suburban community. He is currently fielding a multi-site ethnographic study in Westchester County that examines residents' experiences with housing and schools. His larger research interests include race and racism, gender justice, and community mobilization. He has lectured widely and been a featured expert on the role of race in the contemporary political landscape, suburban and urban regional issues, as well as social justice. Welcome, Dr. Lewis McCoy. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. And it is an honor to be on with you, Sana. Oh, thank you so much. Listeners, I just want you to know that we have been going, first of all, no, let's back up, because I invited Dr. Lewis McCoy to the, to the show about a year ago. He told me no, for good reason, for good reason. <laughs> but all that to say, I've been looking forward to this conversa- conversation um, for over a year, and I'm so glad that we, you know, the, the schedules and stars aligned, and here we are. Absolutely. I mean, after all, a year ago, it was still a whole pandemonium going on outside (laughs) and inside. And I have two small children. So I was like, if your listeners want to hear me also teach people how to read as we talk about the world, we can do that. But if not, let's wait. So I'm glad uh, I'm I'm, I'm glad we knocking on wood have a little bit of lull in the situation so we can talk some. Yes, absolutely. That's why I said for good reason, for very good reason, Um, you know, different stages of the pandemic. Um, And so here we are in a stage where at least we can, um, we can chat. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited this morning to get into some of your research um, around the suburbs, but also around education as well. Great, great. Yes. And so I want to first open it up to you um, because I know I kind of introed our conversation today with talking about, you know, this idea of the American dream. And we think about the suburbs as this space where we have, you know, our, our house, single family home with the garage and the lawn. But as we know, that American dream is also a very racialized American dream, one that has been um, limited historically to white families. Um, and so I'm wondering how much of of that is now influencing how you're thinking about the suburbs and particularly around education? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, for me, the American dream when I was growing up was this idea of having the single family home, having the picket fence, having the dog, having uh, a couple children. Um, and even as a black child in America, that dream never looked like me, right? It often looked like uh, who's the boss, right? A sitcom that was set in, I, I grew up in Connecticut, but it was set in a very different part of Connecticut than the one that I lived in, right? It was the idea that these folks have access to all the amenities that they need and they desire. Um, but I didn't see a similar conversation happening around uh, Black folks, uh, Latinx folks. I didn't see it happening around Asian folks. And I wondered, like, well, what exactly is the American dream? And can I, as someone who is Black, have that dream? And 
it was only through kind of like reading and exploration and looking out outside my own window that I started to realize that the very backbone of this notion of the American dream, this private property, this private family, this curated life uh, can only exist if we make sure that not everyone has access to it, right? Mm -hmm. And it was at that point where I started to really problematize or kind of trouble this idea of the dream, right? And I started to read about folks like Malcolm X, who said, when I look, I don't see the American dream, I see the American nightmare. And I, and, and I wanted to know, well, what are the experiences of Black families who live outside of the city? What are the experiences of uh, Latino families who um, don't necessarily find themselves directly tied to social uh, resources that are often kind of located in urban areas? And I started to explore that question, because I know that many of us aspire to a thing, but what does it mean to aspire to make it, right? So kind of like the definition of making it in America is often having your own. So if you grow up poor, you gotta be non-poor. If you grow up in an apartment, you gotta get a house. If you grow up in a house, you gotta get a bigger house, a McMansion, right? Mm -hmm. And there's always this striving to do more and striving to do more. And I wanted to know, what does that striving look like, particularly for families who don't have it all? What does that striving look like when you just have enough money to move outside of the hood but you move into a place that historically hasn't had people who are lower income. Um, and, and for me, the question of the American dream, is it accessible to all? Absolutely not. In mm -hmm. fact, many folks are questing for a thing that isn't real to begin with. When I teach my students about the American dream, when I teach them about the ideas that have been planted in our head about what it means to live well and get ahead, uh, half of that stuff is from TV, right? And if you live your life based on TV, if you grew up thinking about Leave it to Beaver, if you grew up thinking that everything's going to work out like an episode on Full House or maybe even contemporarily you turn on Blackish and you're like, wow, this is beautiful, right? Um, those, those issues are manufactured, right? I'd love to talk more about what it means to make it over that line into suburban space and then be like, wow, I can't afford my mortgage, right? We don't talk about what it means for uh, a home to be underwater. We don't talk about what it means to have your car repossessed. And now you're in a place where there isn't public transportation. So all of those things kind of motivate my thinking and complicate this idea of what the dream may be. I do have a dream, but my dream uh, far extends beyond this kind of like narrow notion of an American property curated perfect place. And it involves much more making sure that our most vulnerable and our least listened to actually have a say in the direction that we go. Mm, yes. Oh, so much there. So we're going to we're going to come back to your dream because I want to spend some time on that as well. But something you said, I mean, it just really resonated, which is that, you know, we're questing and we're striving for a dream that itself is not real and has never been real. It's always been a dream, right? Something in our mind, mm -hmm. that part, but it hasn't been tangibly real, not even for the people who are living it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be honest, I mean, you really you know, burst my bubble. And, and when you said that what I saw in Full House growing up wasn't real, <laughs> that, that couldn't be my reality or even present day on some of these family sitcoms where they've quote unquote made it. I'm disappointed to know that I can't have that touching family moment around the dinner table where everyone's problem gets solved in 30 minutes and everyone, you know, talks about their feelings and apologizes. And <laughs> listen, listen, you got 22 minutes because eight, eight of those minutes are commercials, right? Right. <sighs> <laughs> we, we, we can have those moments of reconciliation. We can have those moments of learning, but they often come uh, in a long form, right? I think about so much of what people aspire to in, in middle-class ability in America is the absence of problems. Mm. And if there's one thing I know as someone who studies the middle-class is that um, uh, as, as, as Biggie famously said, more money, more problems, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, there is a way that we think by having more assets, that we are more secure and more stable and less trouble when the, the problems evolve, right? And we live in a system that is designed to try to create um, the opportunity to exploit. So we can think about the financial crisis that happened uh, in, in, in the early 2000s, but that was the single largest erosion of Black wealth that we've seen, right? So families, the majority of American families who have wealth hold their wealth in their home. Out of every ethnic community, African-Americans are the only uh, group that buys an asset of a home that on average depreciates. So as we are buying into a dream, as we are trying to make it, as we're moving ahead, there's a sliding scale underneath us, right? 
Now, there are some folks who are able to accumulate two and three and four homes, right? They are, they are, they are what we call, you know, these uh, opportunity hoarders, these dream hoarders. But these folks are not usually the people um, who are, are everyday folks. These are people who came from great amounts of wealth. And it's wonderful if you come from wealth. But the question of, uh, for me in America, can you make it? Can you survive? And what do you desire? Um, we, we, we go past survival and we always try to figure out how can we have more and more. We, we live our lives trying to keep up with the Joneses when the Joneses themselves don't even know what they're doing. Their house is underwater. Uh, they are leasing a car that they really can't afford. And they're selling, telling their kid that they can go to Stanford when they know that the chances of them actually getting into Stanford have decreased over the last 30 years rather than increased. Mm-hmm. What does all of this striving for this kind of false dream, what are the impacts um, if we are, you know, in our minds, okay, I get the house, I move out to the suburbs, or, you know, I get the car, I have these trappings of what are supposed to be this really great life. But now I'm realizing I'm drowning or I'm sinking, right? That I can't even keep up with what it is that I think I, I should be doing. What are the impacts of this? You know, I, I think we can think about impact in a number of ways, right? So one thing to recognize is that uh, suburban poverty has increased so drastically over the past two decades, right? So in many cities, if you looked at the top 100 uh, largest cities, the majority of poor people now live in the suburbs versus living in central cities, right? So we have this way of talking about the city, you know, the urban core, the inner city, right? Uh, One, cities look different now than they did even in 2000. As people have, as uh, lower income folks have located themselves in the suburbs, it also means the question of like, well, what kind of social supports do you have? Because for some of us, moving out there and making it meant that we were supposed to be the ones who, who, who did well, right? What does it mean when you, you're the one who does well, but you still need help, right? And maybe you move to a community where, no, you don't know where to find uh, food, right? So food insecurity is a huge issue in the suburbs because people may have moved to a house, may have moved to an area for schools, but then actually find out the cost of living is so astronomical that they can't provide for their family, right? So what are the consequences of striving for a thing, not knowing? Food insecurity. We have housing insecurity. You know, sometimes you move into a place where, um, and one of the reasons that people are often striving to move to suburban places are for the schools. And maybe it's like, well, listen, I don't know if I can afford this house, but I'm going to go for it anyway because the schools are great and I want my kids to do well, right? I've never met a parent who's like, you know what? Eh, my kids, all right, I'm not trying to help them out. No, we, we all want good for our kids, but we miss the fact that you move into a place that the property taxes continue to rise. Or maybe we move to a place where we rent and the rental itself is not legal. And then when that school district comes knocking on the door to say, all right, prove to me that you live here, you can't produce the paperwork. And now they're saying you got to leave, right? There are a lot of consequences uh, that come for striving uh, with striving when there isn't really a set of supports to do it well. Um, and psychologically, it means that we're often chasing after something that doesn't look like ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, as someone who is Black, I have to recognize that sometimes when we want that dream, when we want to strive for something else, we have in our image not a tight-knit Black community that looks out for each other. I watch my kids, you watch my, uh, I watch your kids, you watch my kids. When, or when something's going on, you can correct my kids. And no, we actually say, I want to get away from that. And there's a way in which our escape to suburban places can also, if we're not careful, mean an escape from the culture that sustained us, an mm-hmm. escape from the culture that enriched us. Because suburban space is often designed for the individual. It's often designed for the person with a car. You travel into work, you travel back to home, and you live in your bubble. But the more we live in bubbles, the less we live together. And the less we live together, the more consequences uh, can greet us at the door. Mm, that what you just said, I mean, chasing after something that doesn't look like us. And what does that what does that mean? Oh, my goodness. I'm like thinking about just the implications of that and how, as you said, sometimes we, we don't even think about what it is that we're chasing after and what that right might really mean and so that really just ooh, I'm gonna marinate on that throughout the rest of the day like what am I striving for and what are the costs um, not just the ones that you laid out but that psychological cost which I think is so great um, that point about community always important as we've seen over particularly these last couple of years the importance of community and social supports and how living that very individualistic lifestyle 
it's not what we are meant to do as humans. Mm -hmm. It's not healthy. And we feel we're not, we're less strong, right? And as we've had to rely on folks over these past couple of years in ways that maybe we thought we wouldn't have to, we thought we'd be insulated from, and we see it really does come back down to, you know, our community and how strong our connections are with others. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and I always try to, one of the things that I study is community mobilization, right? Because it is, we all have a stake in doing better. We all have a stake in doing well for ourselves. But if we're not thinking about the stakes attached to larger communities, then we end up in uh, under the mistaken belief that your family, your child lives alone. So I do a lot of work with folks who are mobilizing around educational equity and justice, right? And so maybe there's an ongoing conversation about access to high quality courses. Maybe there's a conversation about whether there should be police officers in schools. Maybe there's a conversation about the uh, shuttering of after school centers or ha not having adequate after school care, right? And you may look and say, oh, my kid is fine because I know my kid is like really good, head on straight, they're a hard worker, you know, we're able to pay for this particular program after school. Um, and so they're fine. So I don't have to worry if uh, the community I'm in is not actually offering opportunities for teenagers. Well, the fact of the matter is that your kid may be fine, but if the child sitting next to your child and the other child sitting next to your child who are friends don't have the resources they need um, in terms of helping them develop, uh, thinking about the future and career rise, if they don't have stability around housing, if they don't have access to uh, their basic needs met, what your child's friends deal with become the challenges of your child too, right? We never actually live in these bubbles. And many times we, we, we sometimes think that social problems or most of what American logic and society tells us that social problems are individual, when in fact they're collective, right? We orient ourselves to thinking that poverty is about the failing of somebody. They didn't work hard enough. Um, they didn't work hard enough on the job. They didn't work hard enough to find a job. They didn't work hard enough at school, when in fact poverty is much more related to how we value people, how, uh, where we place wages, what are the social safety nets that are there. And so for me, thinking about a community and making sure the community has what it needs is actually at the core of creating greater justice. It's not just literally if you could do it, it's can the folks who came up with you and the folks who are around you do a similar thing? And if they can't, then we have to, re, we have to change the questions we ask uh, about the world around us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. LaRue Lewis-McCoy, an associate professor at New York University. And we've been talking about suburbs. We've been talking about the American dream. And one thing you mentioned before the break was oftentimes families are moving to the suburbs because they're thinking about educational opportunity. And I know much of your work is around education and, and what happens when folks move to the suburbs. Are they actually getting this better educational opportunity or who is and who isn't actually getting the returns on that move. So I want to get into some of that now. So we, again, talk about, you know, oh, there are better schools, right? That's kind of the, the, the belief that we have that just better schools in the suburbs, just any of mm -hmm. them for, for all children, just go. And, and there it is. <laughs> is right, that right. how we should be thinking about it? Um, absolutely. Absolutely not how we should be thinking about <laughs> it, right? So we think about uh, suburban schools, good. City schools, bad. Public school in the suburbs, terrible. I'm sorry, public schools in the city, terrible. Public school in the suburbs, great, right? Uh, there is that kind of thinking of like good and bad always misses out on the most important question uh, to me, which is uh, for which sets of folks are these schools good, right? Mm -hmm. So I study schools and I study the suburbs. And uh, years ago when I started to do this, people said, well, why do you want to study the suburbs? And I said, well, I want to know about the experiences of Black folks, about white folks, about um, people of color. And they were like, oh, then well, you should go to the city. And I was like, yes, there are absolutely people of color and white folks in the city. Um, but more and more folks are moving to the suburbs who are non-white, non-middle class. You know, I, I grew up myself in a working class suburb in Connecticut. And when I started to read a lot of sociology, a lot of Black studies, all the suburbs were white and all the cities were black. Um, and uh, people were confused that I wanted to study suburbs. And then lo and behold, 
when you look at what we know now in 2020, the majority of Black families live in suburbs. The majority of Asian families live in suburbs. The majority of immigrants live in suburbs, right? Um, the majority of uh, Latinx folks live in suburbs, right? So our imagination of the suburbs, number one, are completely wrong, right? Uh, if the suburbs were overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly middle class and overwhelmingly had perfect schools, that was for a moment, and that moment has passed. Mm. What often happens is that suburban schools uh, have a history of achievement because, in part, one, they haven't had to uh, educate a diverse set of uh, children. Two, uh, when you have a small school system, you can control um, what happens and what doesn't happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean education is going well. Many families who move to, sub uh, to suburban school districts find, first off, that they're struggling because mm -hmm. it costs a lot of money to run a school system. And sometimes people move to a suburb and they're like, well, I want to go to this place that has good schools, but I don't want to pay a lot of taxes. Yeah. Uh-oh, here's a direct conflict because you know what pays for schools? Taxes, right? You pay a little bit in tax, then you're going to have a little bit going towards schools, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, my research in particular says, well, what happens when you have the kind of place, uh, and, and my first book, uh, I talk about a place in the Midwest that I call Rolling Acres. You have the type of school and, and, and school district that are ideal. People move there because it kind of looks like your, your, your perfect um, Benetton ad. It looks like a, a nice sitcom. You know, you got people who are college professors and you also have folks who work at McDonald's and you have folks who um, uh, are, are, are college educated or high school educated, but everyone's trying to do better for themselves. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at Rolling Acres, one of the first things I noticed was, wow, when I look at test scores, there's still like this achievement gap. On average, black students, uh, Latino students are scoring far worse than white students, Asian students, what's going on? And when I started to go around Rolling Acres and ask folks, they're like, gee, I, I don't know. Like, I, I sure wish I knew. Like, I sure wish <laughs> that things were more equal because we're a loving liberal place. And, and I love liberal places. Um, but one of the dangers, of course, of liberalism is that you often miss out on what you're doing that's mm -hmm. creating and making an unequal world. And in a lot of suburban schools, particularly ones that are historically white, that are predominantly white or predominantly middle class, what happens a lot is a phenomenon that we call opportunity hoarding. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is the idea that when there is something that is valuable, um, where there is something that is desirable, if one group can gain access to it first, they're going to monopolize and control it. So when I started to look at, well, what are the classes that black students get to take in these suburbs? Are they the same classes that white kids get to take? Uh, the answer was no. I could sit in an AP class in high school and there would be 28 slots and two of the children would be black, even though 13% of the district was black, right? And I was like, well, those numbers don't add up. And then I started to say, well, what happens when we look at the younger grades and we look at um, places where there's gifted and talented and a similar pattern emerged? And then I said, well, let's look at elementary school and let's see what kind of supports uh, students are getting. And I, I was looking in a school um, and 50% of the black children in the school had IEPs. That is, they were identified for, uh, they had the need to receive special education. And I was like, wait a second. Now, either there's something in the water, right? On the black side of town, where all of a sudden everyone is being impacted developmentally, or maybe the same liberal, loving, I want everyone to have a great, uh, 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 a great experience in school. These same set of folks are actually doing things every day that keep um, in particular, Black families from gaining access, from gaining returns to those high quality schools, because the rates of suspension were still high, right? And what I've always been concerned about is like, well, you can tell me that your school system is amazing, but I'm always going to ask those folks that you don't talk about, what is their experience? Yeah. And so I do a lot of talking to, um, to parents, uh, talking to children, talking to teachers to understand what's it like to live here? What's it like to go to school here? Um, what do you think could be changed and um, what has changed? And oftentimes, no matter if I'm studying a suburb in the Midwest, if I'm studying a suburb in the Northeast, if I'm doing work in the South, it is those families who don't look like they have a lot of money. Those families who um, are look like or are perceived to be newcomers, right? Often that means non-white families. Because even in suburbs that have had um, black folks, Latino folks, and Asian folks for years, when you show up, they're like, well, oh, when did your family get here? 
well, my family's been here for two generations. Oh, I, I didn't realize, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's those newcomer families. It's those non-money families who say over and over again, my kids don't get listened to. My family doesn't get listened to. And when I go to the school and I advocate for them to change the, the class that my child is in, when I try to tell them that there needs to be more culturally responsive education, I get told, hey, you should pretty much be glad to be here, right? So instead of being like many of these middle-class families, many of these white families who go into the school and ask for a change and the school moves because they say, hey, you all are like consumers, right? If we don't treat you right, you'll leave. For families of color in particular, they get treated like beneficiaries. They say, well, listen, I'm not going to do that for you, but you should really be glad because we have such a great school system. Mm -hmm. And um, probably where I started to see how clearly uh, that divergence happened was uh, one year I went to a high school graduation and there, you know, it was a high school, one of the high schools in the town that I was in, and there were a couple hundred students. And um, in particular, the white students were going off to Bowdoin and a couple were, you know, a handful were going to Princeton and they were going to great universities. They were, you know, and then when it came to the black students, they were going to the military, they were going to work, they were going to local community colleges. And I said, well, wait, if in a place like this, where there is money, where there are resources, where people claim to care uh, that these folks are not getting access, to high quality education and getting access to great colleges, then where is it happening? Um, And the short answer is that I'm still searching for the places where they do it well, because inequality is often so deeply ingrained, we don't notice when we're participating in it and how we're perpetuating it. Mm. Wow, there was a lot there, Doobie. There was a lot there. So, I mean, First, just this idea that even when families are thinking, okay, I'm going to make the best choice for my children, right? Because we're always, you know, trying to make the best choices for our children the best that we can. And then you move out to the suburbs where allegedly, you know, education is great for all and it's going to be this great equalizer. And you realize you're not being listened to. The concerns that you have are minimized and your children are suffering because of it. And I can only imagine, you know, how much, uh, how disappointing and frustrating that could be for families when you're already bought into this American dream and now you're realizing in a variety of different ways that it's not there, that it's not real um, and how you might internalize that as it's me, right? It's something yeah. I'm doing when it's not. That's right, that's right. And, and one of the hardest things is like when people move to these suburbs for uh, the schools, for you know, uh, the safety and something goes wrong, it's not like you can just pick up and move, right? If you've, if you've ever like bought a house or even just rented a place, you know that that takes labor and time. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be trapped in a space that isn't listening to you, right? So a couple of years ago, there was a video that went um, uh, viral uh, in a suburb in Texas where uh, DeJera Becton was at a pool party and there was uh, um, a police officer, Eric uh, Casebolt, I think his name was, And essentially the pool party got interrupted because uh, another resident called the police and said, there's like a whole bunch of black kids at this pool and I know they're not supposed to be here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and Money Magazine had actually named that suburb uh, the safest suburb in the nation. But for Dejira Becton and her friends, Dejira ended up being thrown onto the ground and held down with her knee and we wouldn't know about it if it had been filmed. But for those black children who were just having a good time, who lived in the suburb, who belonged there, it's not the safest place, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is then uh, the town and other folks are like, oh, it's all a big misunderstanding. But what happens when those misunderstandings are systemic? Mm-hmm. It's because folks are looking at race, folks are uh, perceiving class, folks are looking at gender and saying, we're willing to use our force to control these families. We're willing to have these families to say, um, hey, we love being here, but we're not willing to listen to them. We're not willing to protect them. And those are the kind of things that I hear every day, whether it's um, families that reach out and say, hey, I moved to this neighborhood and now people are literally harassing me, putting notes on my door saying, go back to where you came from, right? Um, What do I do about it? But these stories often get silenced. They get overlooked because it's like, well, you made it. You were able to make it out to Long Island. You were able to make it out to Westchester. And um, I I think we have to uh, look at making it as a process And really more than making it, we have to look at who are we listening to in our communities? How are we making sure everyone has a voice at the table so that we actually have places um, that are safe for all? 
schools that actually educate all and do well by all. Mm-hmm. I mean, such an important question, especially I'm thinking here in, in Memphis and Shelby County, there are, you know, current conversations around changing, again, kind of changing our district, changing the approach to education, um, changing how parents are able to choose, right? Thinking about school choice. And again, what does that choice, quote unquote, mean um, for different families who has access to choice, right? Who can actually mm-hmm. Um, drive their child across town every single day to get them to school if it's all about, you know, this open choice that's available to all. And so very timely conversations um, for the reasons you mentioned, because even if if uh, parents are able to, you know, drive their child to another school, once they get to that school, are they still actually getting this great education that a particular school or a particular, you know, district is known for? And the answer to that is no, as your research shows. (laughs) Um, But you mentioned, you know, how um, we can often contribute to inequality and you name some of the ways. So thinking about school tracking or thinking about even just the the process of listening and who gets listened to. But I'm wondering if you could kind of give us some more examples of that from the parents and even teachers or children that you've spoken to. Yeah. So one of the problems, I will say, of kind of like our orientation as people who are trained in sociology is like, all right, we look for all the bad stuff. We're like, all right, everything's unequal. Now that we got that it's unequal, we'll, we'll tell you about it. And here's 300 pages where we repeat ourselves. And, you know, we, we leave you sad and depressed and dejected. Um, I'm not a person who often tells happy tales. But one thing that I will say is that as I've looked more at communities, one of the first things that I see that is promising is that as more numbers of families in the suburbs, uh, in in schools in particular that have been historically well-resourced realize, hey, this school isn't working well for all kids, there's been a lot more mobilization. And what does that mobilization look like? It looks like one, uh, so I'm thinking about communities here in um, uh, around New York City. So I'm uh, setting a set of communities in Westchester County, which is a a set of, uh, it's a suburban county just north of New York City. And I saw parents who in New Rochelle who came together and said, wait a second, we've got a really diverse school district. And this diverse school district, we've got some problems. We've got some challenges around tracking. We've got some challenges around school discipline. We've got, you know, uh, even some challenges around policing. But uh, just recently, what the school, uh, the school board did was they selected a superintendent, a superintendent who had come from New York City, who was eminently qualified, it appeared on paper. But there was one thing that actually stood out to some of the families in the district, which was uh, this superintendent who had come from New York City uh, was a white woman. And this white woman was leaving New York City, but she was leaving New York City because she felt that she had been passed over um, for top positions by Black women in education. She said, hey, look, listen, I'm white, they're Black, and there's reverse discrimination. And They've been treating me poorly. And, and, and so families were a little bit confused because they were like, well, wait, now we're a very diverse district. Um, can you hold space for white families and black families and uh, Latinx families? And she was like, absolutely. And they started to look at our track record and they found that, no, it seems to be that uh, there are a lot of sets of issues that emerge among uh, black children. And instead of actually mediating them, she pushes it to the side. She was dismissing racism and often endorsing the idea that, hey, after all, it tends to be white people are the ones who are being discriminated against. And I saw black families, I saw white families, I saw Asian families for probably the first time come together and say, hey, wait a second, we're not gonna go down this road again where all of a sudden there is uh, the only way to think about inequality is the ways that white folks are hurt, right? We actually have to listen to a variety of people. So I saw actually um, um, uh, football parents coming together with the NAACP coming together with um, uh, local immigrant organizations to say, we need someone who understands our community and not just a portion of it. Mm -hmm. So they organized, they did petitions, uh, they wrote letters, they filled up school board meetings, they did local radio programming, and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And no one community wanted just their voice to be heard. They were like, well, everyone's got to be at the table and we need someone who's willing to listen. 
And, and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed so much that they actually pushed out that superintendent. And then pushing out that superintendent, they also raised to the school board. They said, hey, listen, you are the set of people who are supposed to represent our interests. And we don't feel like we were listened to in this process. So we actually have to revise the process of how we bring superintendents in. They had to remind the school board, here are the set of rules and laws that you agree to be governed by. And it has led to a, um, a reconfiguration of the school board. It led to a national search for a superintendent who could listen to the communities that were there, not the ones that they wanted to listen to or not the ones that they preferred. Um, and I think it will lead to the kind of change that you want in a school system. School systems are composed of people, they're composed of multiple groups, and school boards have a lot of influence, right? Oftentimes in most suburbs, the school budget is the largest portion of the budget, right? So making sure you have people in those seats who reflect the, uh, the, the variety of people who are in town, making sure you have leadership who understands and cares about everyone to actually create an environment, that's what's important. And I see that happening in some spaces because rather than simply saying, I'm fighting for mine, people start to rethink and say, what does it mean to fight for ours collectively? How do we make sure um, that the kid on the other side of town um, uh, has the same opportunities on this side? Because while we think about segregation only happening in cities, it absolutely happens in the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. Even in places that advertise great amounts of diversity. You have concentrations of immigrant families in certain corners, concentration of black families in other corners, concentration of um, uh, uh, section eight or rental housing in other portions. And we have to work through that segregation. We have to work and fight against it every day so that we actually create a space that's worth living in. Mm -hmm. I am so um, encouraged by this story that you just um, shared. I shouldn't say story because it makes it sound like it's not real, like it didn't happen. Uh, but I'm so encouraged by the mobilization that you shared with about these families because you know, thinking about these are issues across the nation. So in districts, you know, wherever you may be listening from, whether here in Memphis and then from our other listeners as well who are not here, these are the same types of practices um, that in your community, you could take a part of um, whether spearheading or just joining in. Because if you're a family feeling this way, I guarantee there are other families in your school district feeling the same way. And I think it's important to know that there are other folks still fighting, right? Continuing to fight, especially I'm thinking in this time of, you know, book banning, particularly here in Tennessee, right? Um, always making the news for, for all these great things we're doing, right? Um, banning books um, and thinking about, okay, how can, you know, families get involved just because a decision has been made doesn't mean that decision is the one that has to stay forever, right? We can use our collective power to fight for changes that will benefit not just us, but our community, because we all are very much impacted by these decisions. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and for me, part of the story is really amplifying the importance of organizing, because whether it's book bans or whether it's bans of uh, critical race theory, these are very organized and coordinated efforts. It's not somebody became disgruntled and then they decided, hey, let me just repose this. Right. So I've been spending some time recently looking in suburban communities at, at this question of critical race theory, right? Um, as, as you know, Sanaa, that critical race theory is an actual thing. It is an actual theory that comes out of uh, uh, the legal field and it, it, it challenges critical legal studies and it looks at the role of citizenship and laws and belonging. Um, but the conversations that are being had at school boards have very little to do with the actual theory of critical race theory, right? Something that may get taught at uh, uh, University of Memphis uh, in, in a graduate level class. But it has everything to do with dealing with race and attempts to actually produce equity. And so looking at um, probably the person who's most responsible for this conversation around critical race theory and banning it is Chris Rufo. And Chris Rufo is um, very outspoken conservative who knows that he's not talking about the, the highfalutin special theory of race. Um, but what Chris Rufo really knows is that he can organize people to be upset and to challenge things in the local schools. So Chris Rufo's site actually has one of the most well-documented 
um, uh, organizing strategies of how to literally you can show up if you wanted to try to end critical race theory. He's like, here's what you do, right? Here's a couple hundred pages. Here are some templates, etc. Um, and and so Chris Rufo and those who want to keep us from talking about race and equity are very organized. But there's no parallel for people who want to keep books in class that talk about difference, that talk about power, that talk about history uh, in 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 a nuanced and 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 developmentally appropriate way. So we don't have a place where we can click and say, how do I fight to keep the bluest eye on the shelf? How do I fight to keep mouse in the hands of young readers? How do I fight to make sure that early um, uh, childhood educators can read the skin I'm in? And so there is a need for us to act locally, but also think nationally, because as people really fight to try to turn back the hands of time, it's only when we literally link our fate and link our arms to fight back collectively that we'll do it. Uh, I, I often collect smaller examples of people doing it in pockets, but I can't wait for us to actually figure out how to do it, uh, to connect up those pockets to make something bigger, because that's what we need. That's how movement work occurs. And there are some examples on the other side of the aisle, right, that are fighting against equity uh, that I think uh, I want us to learn how to fight for equity in in, in those kind of sophisticated ways, but it's coming, it's coming. Yes, it's definitely coming. Well, let's take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we are back here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm joined by Dr. LaRue Lewis-McCoy, an associate professor at New York University. And we've been talking about the suburbs. We've been talking about education. We've been talking about mobilization. And I'm wondering um, for you, what is giving you hope these days? What are you Mm. hopeful for? <laughs> uh, great question, right? Um, my hope is often rooted in recognizing, despite a desire for difference to be the defining factor in life, despite a desire for uh, uh, people who are poor, people who are black, who are brown, people who are immigrant, um, despite the desire that many people have for us not literally to be present, we are every day fighting and carving new seats at the table. We are literally redefining the narratives around what it means to live and thrive. So what gives me hope is one, we still here, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, the fact that, uh, and, and, and uh, to borrow uh, a title from a fabulous book, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, We Still Here, the fact that we can be in the midst of a pandemic uh, and still find ways to create community, to educate our kids, to fight for um, a world that we haven't seen is important to me. The fact that every time when I walk into a classroom each week with my students, they raise new questions, not just about history, right? They're not just wondering about the 1619 project, but they're wondering, what does it mean to actually build a place that we haven't seen, right? Because so much of the American dream is about what's exceptional about America. When I have students, um, NYU uh, happens to have the largest number of students uh, from China, uh, uh, at a university, when I have students who say, well, wait, what if I want to build something that doesn't hinge so much on uh, the individual identity of American identity or Chinese identity? What does it mean to actually build communities that incorporate multiple voices? I'm like, hey, now we're getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to actually continue the practice of careful and intentional reading? Those are the things that give me hope. Uh, the fact that I have two kids, right? And um, what gives me hope yesterday we're dog sitting. We don't have a dog, but my, my, my four-year-old um, um, uh, was speaking to the, the owner of the dog that's here. And my four-year-old said, I have a question, auntie. Is the doggy blue is blue, he, she, or non-binary, right? And the fact that my four-year-old is literally thinking about gender identity and raising that question to a dog owner who said, I, I don't know, you have to ask, you have to ask blue. But the <laughs> fact that our kids are taking seriously the idea, I want to know who you are, who you say you are, so I can honor you, whether you're a dog or whether you're my classmate, I think is actually marvelous, right? Mm -hmm. Because what people are often afraid of is that the more we recognize that if we have an ethic of care between us, that we're actually going to organize and fight on behalf of someone who's not us, the more dangerous it is, right? For some folks are like, oh my gosh, asking about pronouns is terrible. Like I am, 
No, like ask me pronouns, ask me where I come from, ask me what I value so that when it is time for us to fight, we can fight off people who want to reduce possibility, but then we can work together and listen creatively to create possibility. So much of social movement work, so much of mobilization can leave you um, on your heels, on the defensive, fighting back, fighting back, fighting back. Well, there also has to be the need to create. I am hopeful for this moment because uh, just three years ago, the word abolition was nowhere to be found on the national landscape, right? Mm -hmm. It was maybe you went to a critical moment uh, uh, meeting. Maybe you went to uh, a talk by Angela Davis. Maybe you had heard about prison industrial complex, but now the idea that folks are saying, what does abolition, what does freedom look like, right? And abolition is not simply the process, as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says, of removing things, right? It is the process of building things. Mm -hmm. Young folks in particular are saying, you know what, we got to build something different because I may only be 17, but I'm not going to spend the next 50 years trying to figure out what it takes to actually feed people. We can feed people now, right? So we got to change our approach. Um, So my hope lies in that just as uh, people are hunkering down and trying to reverse change, there are a set of uh, literally imagineers who are doing something different. Uh, and, And so the conversations in my classroom look different. The things that I'm reading look different. The podcasts that I'm hearing have more voices. Now, of course, there are there are plenty of folks who have the space for uh, long-standing hatred and become more sophisticated. Um, but the ethos of love and the beloved community that Dr. King talked about, I think it's emerging in ways that um, even some of us would be amazed to see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up uh, that we need to, to create. It's not just about, okay, what are we fighting against or, or fighting back, but rather what are we creating? And mm-hmm. I think that is so important. And I'm really excited too, um, you know, as an educator, you know, listening to my students and their ideas and that has me excited as well. Um, this semester, I've been extremely intentional about giving my students opportunities to know each other, right? To get to know each other versus just coming into a classroom. I've never felt like I that they should be consumers or that I'm downloading information to them. Right because I'm not, Um, I'm hopefully giving you some new things to think about, or even some new tools to think, right, as a new skills, some new critical thinking skills, but I'm not the the bearer of information. (laughs) Um, And so it's been exciting for me to see students, they're really on, they're really engaged in ways, in different ways than I've seen previously. And to your point, I think it is because of the moment we're in, and they're thinking about new ideas in ways that they maybe would not have had to previously. Um, And this example, even that you said about abolition, you know, I have students who are thinking more creatively, right, and not constrained within what has been or what we think, quote unquote, should be, but rather something just completely different and new. And what can we create with that? That's right. That's right. Um, and, and I feel similarly, my role as an educator, I don't have all the answers. What I want to do is help you understand how to raise different questions and build creative solutions, right? Mm-hmm. My classroom, uh, the irony is that people are like, oh, it's indoctrination happening in the classroom. I can't, I can't get my students to read the syllabus, right? Half the time I'm like, yo, what's going on with your mask, right? Like, I'm certainly not going to be able to indoctrinate them. But if I can teach you to think and raise different questions, right? Because I... I'm young, right? I'm, I'm in my 40s, right? But in my lifetime, the imprisoned population in the United States has increased more than 120%. And it happened while I was living. And the only thing I was taught at that moment was to think about like, oh, mass incarceration is bad. True, mass incarceration is bad. But there's a whole other world of like, well, wait, why do we incarcerate? Do we believe it rehabilitates? Wait, there are all these cases that show something different. And now my students are going to further and further places with their thinking. That makes me say, ah, okay, well, I have to catch up, right? And I love as an educator being, um, having the opportunity to rethink things when a student says to me, well, why can't we? And I'm like, hmm, right? What are my own limitations, right? <laughs> uh, we, 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 we all have our own ceilings. And I think that 
being in conversation with younger folks, right? Being in community with older folks too, right? With elders can help you really rethink possibility. And the more we rethink possibility, the more we can do what Edwidge Dantica asks us to do, to create dangerously, right? Mm -hmm. Because it may seem like in a moment you're doing something small and insignificant. So maybe you decided to, to, to develop a program that assists elders in your community with making sure that they have access to, to good food, right? That food comes to their house. And it's like, oh gosh, like, but the world is crumbling. Like the ice caps are gone. And like Elon Musk is on a rocket to the, you know, sort of outer space, but it, you know, it, it just burned a hole in the ozone, right? Yeah, all that's true. It may seem small, but at some point someone's going to see that program and it's going to seed something greater, right? That all of our action, while you may not be leading a revolution, that all of our actions can be revolutionary and they see the possibility for something different to grow. And it's our responsibility, no matter where we are, to create something different, to create a challenge. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, as long as there are people behind me who are doing that, and as long as I'm in communication with the folks in front of me, my elders who have seen, who have fought, who have loved, who have built, then I feel like I'm in a good place. Mm, I love that. Well, Dumi, it has been such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. I always learn so much from you, and I'm so glad that you are here with me this morning so that other folks can learn from you like I do. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you all for listening. I can't wait to one day make it to Memphis to sit down and have a coffee with you. Yes. Um, sadly, it won't be at my favorite coffee shop, um, I hear. Uh, of muddies but um, I'm sure the listeners can put me on to where the best cup of joe is in the area yes absolutely I can't wait thank you again to Dr. LaRue Lewis McCoy for joining us this morning always such a great conversation uh, I learned so much from him and like I said Dr. Lewis McCoy is one of my I think of him as a, a mentor um, and you all can see why. Um, just such a great scholar, such a great teacher, and also um, so involved in his community as well. And I think that was just such an encouraging word, the reminder that we need each, we need each other and that we can come together and fight for change, not just for ourselves, but for everyone in our communities. So for today's positive note, I just want to remind you, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm here every Monday morning. Can't wait to have you back here with me next Monday. And as always, if you miss part of this episode or just want to listen to it again, the episodes are always archived on WYXR.org. And you can subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in the podcast format as well, wherever you stream podcasts. I hope you have a great day.